always follow darkness. Keep going the way you're going, you end up as a bum on the street. You train. You fight harder than those other guys, and you win. You can take it, you can make it. You can do this, Lou. You just gotta believe you can. Pop does. Ma does. I do. Louie, the moment of pain is worth a lifetime of glory. We're gonna die out here. We're not dying! Who is the Olympic athlete? Don't look at me. Hello, mother, father. This is your Louis talking. I am now interned in a Tokyo prisoner of war camp. I can't say this. What it says about America, it's not true. This man must be taught respect. Each prison will teach him this lesson. He used to think that I could do anything. That I was better than I am. Who says you're not? If you can be through this, I swear I'll dedicate my whole life to you. Drops it. Shoot it. Well, good morning. Glad you all are here. Why don't you grab your Bibles at this point in time and turn with me to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 1. Easy to find. Uh, if you don't have your own Bible, there should be some scattered in the pews uh, in front of you. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. We'll be taking a look at some verses in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, easy to find. And then do this for me. Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes, just sort of put your finger there. We'll be ending up in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, oh, you'll find it after Psalms and after Proverbs. They're in the middle of your Bible. So uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then Ecclesiastes, that's where we're going to be this morning as we begin a new uh, sermon series this morning. So let's uh, turn there, Genesis 1, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive right in. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Would you pray with me? And then we'll begin. Father, thank you for the morning. It is a privilege for us to be here. Uh, it's so good to be with your people, uh, to be under your word, uh, to hear your word through your spirit. And Father, we pray that you would help us to make much of your son, Jesus, that we would find in you fullness of joy, uh, everlasting uh, satisfaction and contentment. Lord, you are altogether good, altogether glorious, altogether worthy of all that we have. And we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, by the power of the Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said together, Amen. Well, these were the last words that uh, Louis Zamperini heard on board the Green Hornet. Prepare to crash. Prepare to crash. These were the last words before impact. 
Louis was an American World War uh, II uh, fighter. He was on a combat plane that had lost both engines and crashed roughly 2,000 miles into a trip across the Pacific Ocean. He was a 1936 Olympic, Olympic sprinter, and he was at that time a national celebrity. Now, the good news was that he had survived the crash. The bad news was that he was alone, stranded in the largest ocean in the world. Of course, the clip that we just saw from the 2014 film Unbroken was based off of Louis's life, which then went on to include landing on a Japanese-occupied Marshall Islands where he was captured and subsequently tortured. As his life moved on following the war and his release, he became a Christian, and he was a very strong Christian evangelist with a very powerful message of forgiving one's enemies. So there he was, there he sat, in a flimsy, inflatable raft, facing numerous threats to his life. As he drifted on the waters of the Pacific for some 47 days... For some 47 days, he was faced with the sun, which of course caused sunburn and blisters and dehydration and and his lips to swell up into his nose and into his chin. He had enemies below, 12-foot sharks that mockingly rubbed below his raft. And he had, of course, enemies from above as Japanese planes uh, attempted to shoot up his raft, somehow miraculously missing Louis. Of course, he had no food, and being without food for 47 days, he lost an alarming two pounds a day. Now, with all of these challenges outside of him, perhaps the greatest challenge that he faced was actually inside of him. What was that threat? Well, it could be summed up in one word, thirst. Thirst. All around him was cool, wet, clear water. Cool, wet, clear water. He was surrounded by millions of square miles of it. But of course, we know that that wasn't drinking water. It was what? Salt water, right? Salt water. It looked good, felt good, must have sounded good to him those 47 days that he was on the raft. But he knew, and we know, that maybe it would have temporarily refreshed him. But eventually, over time, a steady diet of salt water would have had devastating consequences on Louis. It would have eventually killed him. Had he fallen for this thirst-quenching substitute... He would have eventually gotten dehydrated, his organs would have failed, and he would have gone into a coma. No, Louis knew better. He knew the difference between good water, life-giving water, refreshing water, and salt water. Friends, I wonder if we know the difference. I wonder if we do. This is what we do, each and every one of us, Every day, we sip on salt water, if you will, with devastating results. This 
drive, this urge to sip on salt water is so innate to us that that we are inoculated from even realizing it. It is such a part of who we are as fallen human beings. The Bible calls our propensity to sip on salt water instead of living water several things. It calls it idolatry. It calls it uh, spiritual adultery. It likens this um, to forsaking a spring of good, life-giving water in favor of broken cisterns that are full of dirty, harmful water and so many other images. See, some of us drink it by the cupful. We take a a huge 64-ounce cup of salt water and we guzzle it, while other of us sort of sip on it like a latte from Starbucks. But rest assured... You and I are sipping it. We sip salt water. And that is, of course, the name of our new sermon series, Sipping Salt Water. It's based on a book that I would highly recommend. In fact, I have some extra copies in my office. It's called Sipping Salt Water by Pastor Steve Hopp. How to find lasting satisfaction in a world of thirst. In a world of thirst. So here's what I'd like for us to do in part one of our sermon series. I want us to get to the root of our spiritual thirst. I want us to look at the underlying cause of what makes us spiritually thirsty and what causes us to pursue salt water. So in Genesis 1 and 2, what we see is paradise lent to us. That is God lent. He gave to us as as, a, as, a, as human beings, paradise. In Genesis 3, we see paradise lost. And as we move into Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we see paradise longed for. What is the root? What are we looking for? What do we really want? I would suggest that the root of our thirst is a desire for paradise. And we'll flesh that out, what we mean, as we work our way through the text. So let's take a look at Genesis 1 and 2 with with paradise lent, lent to us. Now, when I say the word paradise, I wonder what images come to your mind. Paradise. I, I don't know about you, uh, but for me, I often think of places like Hawaii or the Bahamas. You know, someplace warm and with cool water and beaches and lush green vegetation. That's, That's what I think of when I think of paradise. How does the Bible describe paradise? I want us to just get a snapshot, if you will, of the place that God prepared for us as human beings in Genesis 1 and The Bible begins in Genesis 1 uh, big, and I mean really big, with a big God creating a, a huge universe full of beauty and complexity and color and purpose. There in Genesis 1, in six sweeping days, our Creator makes all that we know, all that we see, and then even some that we cannot see or may never see. And throughout the, the, the creation process, right, there is this repeated chorus, like the ringing of a church bell, over and over again. God creates, and he looks at this paradise creation, and what does he say? That it is what? Good, right? He looks at it, and he says, this is 
good. He makes the day and the night, the sun and the moon and the stars, the sky and the heavens, the the ground and the seas. He makes creatures in the waters and on the ground and in the sky. And on the sixth day, he creates what is the the crown jewel of his masterpiece. He makes human beings. Notice, take a look specifically at verse 27, if you will. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so the crown jewel of creation is human beings. He makes us in his image. Turn to chapter 2, if you will, momentarily. We see some more details in chapter 2 of what this creation paradise looks like, right? Genesis 1 is sort of the introduction to creation. In Genesis 2, we get a more full picture of what this paradise looked like. If you just look early on in chapter 2, there are streams, right, that come up from the earth there in verse 6. There is a river in the middle of a lush and beautiful garden that God made for Adam and for Eve, full of vegetation, full of fruit, full of life, full of beauty. There are other rivers described. Beautiful stones exist there. Friends, from a cursory look at Genesis 1 and 2, what we see is nothing less than paradise, is it not? If this is not a picture of paradise, then I don't know what is. But here's the catch. It was not paradise because of what was there. This is key. This was not paradise because of what was there. This was paradise because of who was there. Because who was there with mankind in paradise? God was. God was there. Take a look back at chapter 1. We see that God not only creates these image bearers, but he speaks to them. We overlook this. It's just, we're so used to it. It should stun us. The creator of all that we see and know speaks to his creation. Take a look back in chapter 1 at verse 28. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it, and there's more to come. Friends, this is huge. God doesn't just create and then let his creation be, sort of put it on a trajectory, and then say, I'm, I'm hands off. No, he, he, he speaks to them. He enters into a covenant relationship with mankind. He reveals himself to us in words. And not only in words, but we get the sense, if you want to look at Genesis 3, verse 8. Take a look at Genesis 3, verse 8. We get the sense that God revealed himself to Adam and Eve physically. There, there's a physical manifestation, right? Because there in verse 8, we see even after the fall, God, in pursuit of Adam and Eve, quote, was walking in the garden in the cool of the the day, which makes us think that this was a common thing, right? It seemingly was normal for God to walk with and talk with and spend time with Adam and Eve to physically manifest himself to them. He gives, back in chapter 2, Adam orders, does he not? He, he, in chapter 2, he speaks to Adam. He blesses them. And, and take a look at verse 15 in chapter 2. 
He places Adam in the middle of this garden paradise. He gives a prohibition in 16 and 17, does he not? Right? Don't eat from this single tree or else you will die. And then he creates for Adam a partner, a helper in verses 18 through 25 to assist Adam in his God-given task. So friends, here's, here's the point. From what we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2 and even a little, a little bit in 3, that the Garden of Eden was paradise, not because it was lush and green and fruitful and comfortable and luscious and exquisite, although it was all of those things, right? This was paradise because God met with mankind there. The relationship between Creator God and the creation, that was what Genesis 1 and 2 was all about. That's what paradise was all about. Me and you, mankind, being with, spending time with God, obeying God, living for His glory. That's what we were made for. It was paradise there because there we met with God. There we were in His presence. There we knew perfect obedience to Him. There we had limitless access to Him. There we found our purpose in His precepts and our joy in His smile. That is paradise. And friends, that's what we were made for. This is what God intended for each and every one of us. To be there in the garden with Adam and with Eve. This is what God intended for us, where true joy and satisfaction and happiness and delight and purpose and meaning were found there in the garden, there in paradise. But you and I know the rest of the story, right? Not only do we know the rest of the story in the Bible, but we know the rest of the story in our experience, do we not? It doesn't take long before the paradise that God lent us became the paradise that we lost. So turn with me to Genesis 3, where we see paradise lost. Alas, there is trouble in paradise, is there not, as we move into chapter 3. As we move from 2 to 3, we see nothing less than the unraveling of God's perfect and soul-satisfying creation and relationship with him, accomplished thanks to the sneaky deception of a snake that we later find out is none other than Satan himself. So let's take a look at the text there, starting in verse 1. We're familiar, most of us, with this story. First of all, the snake questions, and he twists God's word, casting doubt in Eve's mind about his trustworthiness. Notice verse 1. He approaches Eve in the garden. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Friends, is that what God said? No, that's not what God said. So he casts doubt in Eve's mind about God's trustworthiness. He twists God's word. Next in verse 4, he outright denies God's word. What does he tell Uh, our, Our first mother, if you will. He says, you will not certainly die. What did God tell Adam and Eve? If you eat from this tree, you will certainly die. 
And now the serpent is saying, you will not certainly die. Notice in verse 5, the Satan outright lies about the reality of disobeying God, hinting that God really didn't have their interest in mind, hinting to them that there was really something better. God was withholding something. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil, and we know how the story goes down, do we not? Adam and Eve took the bait, they took a bite, and as a result, you and I have been doing the same ever since. The catastrophic consequences of the first human sin cannot be understated. As we look at the rest of Genesis 3, what we see is that God judges the snake. He judges the snake, he casts him to the ground, and he puts enmity between the snake and between human beings. Next, God judges Eve. He makes giving birth extremely painful, and he makes marriage maybe even more so. God judges Adam, making the the work, right, the work of the soil, his toilsome and difficult. And then he he pronounces a judgment uh, upon all mankind, Each and every one of us undergo this judgment. Death. Death is is brought into the equation. And it was never meant to be. But worst of all, worse than all of these consequences, the most devastating consequence of, of, of human sin, both to Adam and to Eve and to us, we see it in verse 23. Paradise was lost. Take a look at verse 23. So the Lord banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So paradise lent has now become paradise lost, never to return, never for Adam and Eve to live in God's presence like they once did, never to experience the joy and the beauty and the satisfaction that both they and we were created for. They were banished from God to die apart from him. Adam knew it. Eve knew it. And friends, we know it too. We know it as well. Steve Hopp in his book comments. He says, we are on the same team as Adam and Eve. We're just as greedy, just as self-centered, just as rebellious, just as sinful. In fact, we've inherited their sinful nature. We We're ruled by the passions of our egocentric hearts. He says we are on Adam and Eve's team of rebels against God. And friends, we are born that way. So we face, he writes, the same consequences as them. We've been expelled from God's presence, cast out of the metaphorical garden. He says paradise is nowhere to be found. Friends, we too have been banished from this paradise. And that's not just the beautiful garden, right? We, because of Adam and Eve's sin, and because of our sin, we are banished, naturally born, sinful people, apart from God, separated from His presence. And because of that, there is a hole, so to speak, in our hearts. A gaping, a gap in our being, if you will. It, it haunts us because we know that there's something more but we don't know what it is and we don't know where to find it 
unless God reveals it to us. And he has. And we'll speak of that here shortly. So paradise was lent to us in Genesis 1 and 2. It was lost by us in Genesis 3. So what is the result? Because it was lent to us, we had it, and we lost it. The result then is paradise longed for. Paradise longed for. So turn with me now. I hope you have your finger on Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There in verse 1, Solomon begins sort of very typical in Ecclesiastes. There's a, there is a, with a, a sort of a main point. There's a time for everything, a season for everything, uh, for every activity under the heavens. And then he goes on to talk about there's a time for this and a time for that, a time to be born, a time to die. There was a song written after this. You may be familiar with it. And then he kind of gets to it in verse 10. He says, I've seen the burden of God that he has laid upon the human race. Verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And here's where I want us to focus. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I want to tell you a story about a man. We'll call him Rob. I've changed his name, but it is a a true story. Rob was a successful lawyer, and he worked for a very prestigious law firm in Chicago. He had uh, a lovely and devoted wife. He had three children that admired him and respected him and loved him greatly. He lived in a nice, large, uh, suburban neighborhood. Of course, as a lawyer for a big law firm, he made a very comfortable living. He was handsome. He was witty. He was smart. He went to an Ivy League college. Everybody liked Rob. Everybody liked Rob. Sort of sounds like paradise, right? It was maybe on the surface or on the outside. But what only his family and his close friends knew was that of his 67 years of life, 40 of those years were spent uh, as an alcoholic. Eventually, because of it, he lost everything. His dream job, his career, his wife, his children, his nice suburban home, and countless dollars, all because he was addicted. And we choose this illustration not because of the particular um, draw of alcohol. Countless stories about countless thirsts could be told. So the question, as we think about Rob, the the surface level is why? What would drive a man who seemingly lived in paradise just to forego it? I mean, what, what, why? And of course, the surface answer answer is pretty easy, right? Addiction. A surface answer, easy. But but I think, scripturally speaking, that sort of barely scratches the surface here. There's a much deeper much more profound reason why. And in his, uh, in his own words, after he came to faith in Christ, quite literally on his deathbed did, did Rob, could he only articulate this. But, but there was a, a more pr- profound reason, a deeper reason. And again, it's our word. Thirst. Thirst. He was thirsty. And I don't mean he was physically thirsty. He was spiritually thirsty for something that no beverage, 
no experience, no possession, no relationship could satisfy. He was thirsty for more than even the whole world could offer. And friends, so are we. So are we. He, like each and every one of us, was thirsty for something satisfying, something to gratify us, something refreshing, rewarding, something to fill the nagging gap in our hearts. He and we long for something to bring peace to a a troubled soul, something out of this world, something, if you will, heavenly. See, Rob and each and every one of us thirst for paradise. It's what we what we desire. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Let's read it again. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, uh, God has placed within the heart of every person a sense of something eternal. A piece of paradise is in our hearts. It's missing We desire to know the eternal significance of what we do. We want to know that what we're doing in this life matters, right? We want to know, and yet we can't fully grasp it. Christians have recognized this and wrote about it for millennia. And I just want to share three Christians who wrote about this. The first is Augustine of Hippo from the 4th century. He said this of God to God. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's what Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is saying. God has set eternity in our hearts. Many centuries later, in the uh, the 17th century, Blaise Pascal, you may know him as a mathematician or a physicist, but what you may not know is that he was a Christian and a theologian. And he wrote uh, about uh, matters of theology. And, And this is what he had to say. I think he really says it well. He says, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness? Paradise, right? Genesis 1 and 2. A true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This, he says, he he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. Since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. You may have heard the phrase in a song or in Uh, Books that there is a God-shaped hole in all of us that's generally attributed to Blaise Pascal. But we really know that God wrote it in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. But here, I think, is the best explanation of what we've been looking at. Paradise lent to us, paradise lost, and paradise longed for. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis and his wonderful apologetic of the Christian faith, mere Christianity, he writes this. He says, When the real want for heaven is present in us, we do not recognize it. 
Most people, he writes, if they really had learned to look into their own hearts, <clears throat> would know that they, that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us, for instance, he says, when we first fall in love or, or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us. He says, these, these are longings that no marriage and no travel and no learning can really satisfy. He goes on to write, there was something we grasped at in the first moment of these longings, which just fades away in the reality. In other words, we think it's going to satisfy us, and it won't. He goes on and says, I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent, and the chemistry may have been very an interesting job, but something has evaded us. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. Did you catch that? Catch that? He says, creatures, including us, are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. For example, he says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. And then he says these fantastic words. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I think that's a wonderful um, commentary on Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So, having been lent paradise, only to lose paradise, we now are in a state as fallen human beings without Christ, without God's intervention, that we long for paradise again. We long for it. But until we find the one who can bring us there, we attempt to satisfy our thirsts in all sorts of things. Alcohol was for Rob. We're going to talk about nine or ten things which we seek to satisfy ourselves in. A million counterfeit gods of our choosing exist. Our nagging thirst for paradise lost. In that nagging thirst, what do we turn to without God, without Christ, without finding the living water? What do we look for? What do we drink? It's salt water. We turn to salt water. We'll flesh this out in the weeks to come. See, Louis, as he sat there in his little dinghy in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, thirsty, probably more thirsty than any of us could imagine. He was thirsty, and he knew it. There he was. He was in what uh, plane crash survivors call, he was in the drink, right? You're stuck in the middle of the ocean, you're in the drink. Isn't that a fascinating uh, line? Because are you really in the the drink? No, (laughs) right? You're not in the drink at all. Because if you drink what's in the drink, you will die. Right? You're not in the drink. Had he drank it, he would have been devastated. He knew he really wasn't in the midst of thirst-quenching fresh water. He knew that he was in the midst of thirst-creating salt water. And the question I want to leave us with is, do we know the difference?
Do we know the difference between the two? Well, next week we'll be introduced to what salt water is, biblically speaking. The varieties of salt water that we like to sip on or guzzle, and what Steve Hopp uh, so helpfully describes as the salt water cycle. This idolatrous cycle that gets us on and on and on until we turn to the living water, springs of living water. Friends, we don't have to stay there. Here's the good news, and we'll close with this. The good news is that we, though, have lost paradise and we long for it, we can have it again. The great news, and this will be fleshed out in weeks to come, is that paradise can be regained. It can be regained through what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we think about what Jesus did, he came from heaven to earth as an infant. And he lived a perfect life of obedience. Now, what, what were Adam and Eve's meant to do? They were to live in relationship with God, perfectly obedient to God. That's what God required of, hu- of humanity. We all fall short of that. But Jesus Christ did that for us. Now, what was the penalty that we all suffer because we failed to do that? You eat from this tree and you will surely what? Die. Physically and spiritually. There's separation from God. So that was the penalty. Who paid for that penalty? Jesus Christ paid for that penalty. He paid, if you will, for the salt water that you and I sip. He never took a drink. But he paid the penalty for all of our sins so that we could have a restored relationship with God, so that we can be with Him in paradise forever and ever and ever, and so that we even now, until we get there, can have the living spring of water, Jesus describes in the the Gospel of John, flow from inside of us, that we can have eternal life even here and now as we anticipate paradise later. So friends, I don't want to leave you empty. We had paradise. We lost it but you can have it again through a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ. And if you want to know how to do that, please, when we're done here, come and talk to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for your word. Thank you for the big picture that we see in your word that helps us understand what it's like to be a sinful, lost person with cravings and thirsts that no drink, that no relationship, that no possession, that no achievement that no pleasure can ever really satisfy until we turn to you, our fresh water, our living water. Father, I pray if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and they have never experienced the fresh water of Jesus Christ, may they even now turn from their sins, place their faith in him and in him alone, and receive eternal life as a free gift. And may the the living waters begin to flow in their hearts. Even now, I pray in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.